Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Back from our annual summer break with a really interesting album to discuss, one that reaches across the Atlantic and across time, Nothing But Green Willow, the songs of Mary Sands and Jane Gentry. The album was conceived by Tom Utes, who's here to talk about it with us, and Martin Simpson. Martin Simpson is an English guitarist who's been nominated for 32 BBC Radio 2 Folk Awards, has been nominated for Artist of the Year nine times consecutively, and has also been nominated for Best Album, Best Original Song, Best Traditional Track, Best Guitarist, and Musician of the Year with multiple wins. His partner in this project is Grammy-nominated guitarist, producer, and songwriter Tom Utes. In addition to his Grammy nomination, he's earned four nominations and a 2021 win for the International Bluegrass Music Association Songwriter of the Year Award. His songs have been recorded by John Prine, Nancy Griffith, The Steel Drivers, many more. And Tom obtained a master's degree in Appalachian Studies from East Tennessee State University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Nothing But Green Willow is comprised of ballads from English folklorist Cecil Sharp's collection from the early 1900s, English folk songs from the Southern Appalachians. The story of this collection and how it came to be, I, I thought was really fascinating, Tom. Can you, can you start by telling us that story? Yes, um, I'll, I'll tell you just a little bit about Cecil Sharp. Cecil Sharp was an English folk song collector. He was also a very good musician. He was a composer. He was a folk uh, dance collector and instructor as well. And he came to the United States in 1916 and 1918. Um, he had a contact in East Tennessee, a lady called Olive Dame Campbell, who uh, her and her husband were academics working in that area. And she had started collecting folk songs of, of English origin. And Sharp got uh, was introduced to her. And Sharp uh, had an inkling that a lot of those songs were songs that people in England didn't remember anymore, but people in Appalachia, because they had lived in relative isolation in southwestern Appalachia, still remembered those songs. And so... He came, as I said, 1916, 1918 to Appalachia. He went by with his assistant, Maud Carpelli's. They traveled by train as far as they could, which um, was in, in one case, Asheville, North Carolina. And from there they had to walk, um, go by a horse-drawn cart or ride mules, um, and just go by word of mouth, finding people who remembered some of those old ballads and Maud Carpelli's would write down the lyrics and Cecil Sharp would write down the notation. And often they found the same songs, but they they noted down, they took down different versions. And Sharp's um, collection is very detailed as in who sang the songs, where and when, what were the details lyrically, musically, what were the scales being used, all of that. So it's very much the work of an academic. And it's pretty much as close to the horse's mouth as we can get pre-recorded music. Recorded, re recording equipment existed at the time, but it would have been impossible for Sharp and Carpelli's to take that equipment on those trips. So it, it's truly truly an oral and oral um, collection. And uh, I had gotten to, I, I had learned about this collection many years ago and was very highly fascinated with it and, and uh, always wanted to do something with it, but it's a work of quite some size. It's... Um, depending on how you count, it's it's about 500 songs, but there's a lot of different versions of those songs or ballads. And so I didn't have an angle on it. I didn't know how to get to it. And then I read through a coincidence that Jane Gentry, um, a woman from Hot Springs, North Carolina, had contributed um, 70 songs, about 70 songs to the collection, which is a large number for one individual. And then a lady called Mary Sands, who lived in a community very close by called Allen Stand, that's less than 10 miles away, probably. Um, she contributed 40 songs, at 30 or 40 songs. And so I went like, wow, that's amazing. Two women, country women, who probably 
didn't know each other, or maybe they knew each other. We don't know. Maybe they knew of each other. We don't know that neither. Maybe they didn't know each other and just ran across each other on the market somewhere in town when people were selling tobacco. But um, they uh, unknowingly and without uh, any intention changed the course of American folk music, I think it's, it's safe to say, because a lot of those songs would have been lost. And so that became sort of the angle that Martin and I started talking about when we were introduced by Topic Records. And and then we just, uh, you know, wrote down all the songs that those two women had contributed to the collection. And we decided, let's make this, let's each pick six songs. And we ended up picking 13 songs instead of 12. And then we decided, wouldn't it be cool if like we'd find six Appalachian folk singers and six English folk singers and, and represent this, um, this diversity in terms of geography that's expressed in those songs. And so Martin uh, identified six folk singers in England that he was a big fan of and thought were good singers for these records and, and paired them with the song. And I found six folk, song, folk singers here and paired them with uh, one of these songs. And then Martin sang one, I sang one. And so that's how it all came together. And then last summer, Martin was here in, in uh, he was in America in upstate New York teaching at Richard Thompson's guitar camp. And so that became a perfect uh, anchor date for us to start recording. So he, when he was done there, he flew down to Nashville. I picked him up at the airport and we played together for a couple minutes and knew that this was going to work out fine. We had not met each other in person before. We'd only talked on the phone. Wow. So there was a certain musical risk involved because you never know how well you're going to play with somebody. But um, it worked out. I mean, it was clear in terms of timing and tone and all of that, that we were, it was a musical brotherhood. And then we started recording the next day, uh, which was a Sunday, recorded till Tuesday, and then flew to, Tuesday evening flew to England together and recorded there for a couple of days with the English guys. And, and that was it. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazingly, uh, an amazing, journey to make this record and a joy to make it and, and i'm very happy with the way it turned out one of the uh the the themes in this whole uh project that uh, brian and i both found fascinating is all these crossings of the atlantic uh cecil and maude crossing in order to preserve this music that was being forgotten in the old world and being reimagined in the new world and then you uh doing these crossings to to produce the record but i think one of the other interesting crossings is both of you uh, as um, aficionados of, of the American folk tradition are, are also making a crossing at, or made a crossing at some point in your career to, uh, to, to, to further explore this music and to, uh, yeah. uh, and to uh, become practitioners in it. And I think uh, you know, many, many people you know, may not realize that, uh, that uh, you know, your great-grandparents were not sharecroppers in South Carolina, uh, no. but you came from somewhere else. No, uh, well, Martin lived in the in the states for fourteen years, and Martin is one of those uh, rare people who can interpret English folk music with the same authority that he can play uh, Bjelkazi banjo stuff from Appalachia. He's internalized all of that kind of stuff. He's an amazing guy to to work with and play with. I was born in in uh, Southwest Germany in the Black Forest, and. Uh, it was a fairly musical family. Um, I was encouraged to, you know, play piano and flute when I was a kid. But in um, in the uh, in October of 1981, when I was just about to turn 12, I saw the great country singer Bobby Bear on a on a TV show in Germany, and he sang Detroit City, and he sang Pour Me Another Tequila, Sheila, and Lay Down and Love Me Again. And that was um, something happened in my <laughs> in my kid brain that moment, seeing him and hearing him, and uh, I knew that I wanted to learn about this music and make this music and, and make it my life's work. And so I started playing guitar the next day and figured out the chords to Detroit City. And from there on, it was just a, a long journey to learn more about this music. And in the early 80s in, in rural Germany, it wasn't, um, certainly wasn't a, life there wasn't a hardship or anything, but it was difficult to get your hands on on American folk music that was not part of the mainstream because there were hardly any record stores and the ones that were there had stuff that was uh, firmly rooted in the mainstream. So it was just, you know, a, a journey through books and records and tapes and whatnot. And then 
um, I knew that Nashville was the place where people played this music. And so I learned more about that and then met my wife who had just come back from living in America for five years. And I was 15 at that time. She was 14. We were still together, uh, still happily married. And we, uh, she wanted to move back to America. I wanted to move to America. And so we just had to wait till we had finances in place, had a green card and, and all that. And so we, we moved here full-time 20 years ago, October this year. And, and uh, it's, it's the, the best decision I've ever made. And I've, I've never looked back, not because I hate where I'm from, but just because my, my, I, I sort of in a way wasn't born in the right place. I, I need to be <laughs> where this music, where this music is important. Interesting. So the, um, you know, the, this project is historical, obviously, and, and sort of, um, about the connecting of dots uh, f- uh, that follows these songs, you know, from England to America and then Cecil taking them back. Um, but also there's sort of a long shadow cast forward um, in terms of the roots um, of American styles like bluegrass and country, yeah. um, you know, having their roots in that music that, that your album focuses on. What is it about um you know, America's melting pot or, or, or uh, the, the context of America that, that allows there, that allowed that evolution? Well, you know, I think these, these songs are songs about archetypes or they, they deal with archetypal topics. They're not chained to autobiography and American roots music um, deals with those topics as well. So that's why those, those songs are so so um, rel- not easy, but that's why they lent themselves so well to being interpreted in different ways. Like take, for instance, the, the Wagoner's Lad, the song that Martin Simpson is singing on this record. That's a song that was recorded by Buell Kazee, a banjo player for the Vocalion label in 1928, one year after the Bristol Sessions. Then it found its way on the Harry Smith anthology of folk music in 1952. And then it was sung by people like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and Joan Baez in the late 60s. Hmm. And then some of these songs were recorded again by Dylan in the 80s and 90s when he went through a dry spell and recorded two albums of of traditional music that influenced him. So um, I think that's why these songs are so important and lent themselves so well to be contextualized with, with what we call American roots music. And also because all forms of American roots music are so... Uh, directly connected. You know, I think it's important to remember that American roots music is not black or white. It's black and white and white and mm-hmm. black from, from the beginning. Um, and the, obviously the instruments being used, the banjo being the most prominent one, is an instrument that was brought here by by African-American, by African slaves and is now identified as the archetype of the hillbilly instrument, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> um, right. So I think there's just so many uh, um, overlapping circles, you know, with with all of this. One one theme that's very prevalent in these songs on this record is this theme of class. You know, there's a lot of songs about uh, people being used, abused by aristocrats in England, and the people in Appalachia certainly perceived themselves as outsiders within America, or were looked at as outsiders within America because they lived in relative isolation and so class is is informs these songs as well again and also if we look at you know if you look at the earliest of at early recordings of country music where this music was recorded by northern industrialists and businessmen and then marketed back as hillbilly music to white southerners um it's just it's just weird and <laughs> and and talks a lot says a lot about how we perceive class I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense, but... Yeah, it does. Fortune of all womankind 
They are always controlled They're always confined Controlled by their family Until they are wives And a slave to their husbands The rest of their lives Oh, I am a poor girl My fortune is bad I have often been courted By the wagoner's lad He courted me dearly By night and by day And now he is leaving and going I love the concept of uh, taking voices from from the old world, as it were, and taking voices from the the new world from from Appalachia to to reimagine and interpret these songs. Um, and I'm curious for the songs you selected. What was your process of matching a vocalist to the tune? What what criteria did you have in mind? Yeah, like for instance, if you take the song uh, "Pretty Cero that that Odessa Settles is singing. Odessa is an African-American lady who comes from a prevalent African-American uh, musical family. Her dad was a singer in the Fairfield Four, and she was in the Princely Singers, which was a, a group that was important in the civil rights struggle in Nashville. And she still has the family group that's now called the, the Settles Connection. And she's an amazing singer and an amazing person. And so reading that lyric of when first I came to this country in 1842 or whatever, I can't remember the exact uh, number of year, but I just listened to the rest of this lyric and went like, huh, what if an African-American person sings that? That lends a whole different meaning to the song. I first came to this country in 1849 I saw many fair lovers but I never saw mine I view it all around me I found myself alone and me a poor stranger and a long ways from home. Although obviously that was after the officially the, the transatlantic slave trade was had been made illegal, but people were still coming here. And and also these songs are not so concerned with like details in terms of numbers, years, names, even like one song is called Edwin in the Lowlands Low. So the protagonist is called Edwin in the title, but in the song he's called Edward. So, yeah. you know, yeah. like these songs. Just the looseness were not, there, yeah. Absolutely. You, t- you can take a lot of those old songs, take 
Worried Man Blues, which is not on this record, but the song goes like, the guys, I went down to the river, laid, myself, laid down to sleep, woke, uh, woke up with shackles on my feet. We don't know why. Not why did he go to the river? What did he do? Did he commit a crime? Who put the shackles on his feet? It doesn't matter. He's in the situation and now he has to deal with it. And that's what I love about these these old songs. They're, they're about people who find themselves in a certain situation, typically pretty extreme situations like in Edwin in the Lowlands Low, the, 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 the protagonist is killed by his fiance's father. Uh, in, in Gypsy Laddie, a woman leaves her husband, her home, she's of, of, of um, higher social standing. She even leaves her baby to go with the gypsy, with a, a, a traveling musician to pursue a, a, a fully realized life. So these are just, it's just weird characters that are not so, that are not chained to autobiography. And I think what's, not to focus on things that I, that are, that I think are wrong with music, but I think um, if a song is always tied to autobiography, how can it belong to the audience? It belongs to the writer and not to the audience. And I think that's, that's not what music is for. Music belongs to the audience more than it belongs to the writer. And I think we're seeing so much introspection in today's music that it's, it's almost become claustrophobic, where people are scared not to sing around the things around them, but are, only give themselves permission to think about their internal affairs. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's not conducive to the music. And th these old songs did that. They didn't have to think about it. They, that was just the way, because music belonged to everybody. Nobody claimed that they had written these songs. It was just like, well, they've always been around. Yeah, I was fascinated with with um, in reading the story and in thinking about this tradition that um, one of the points uh, <clears throat> that was made about why these two singers and their contributions were the focus of this album um, was not only their geographic proximity in Madison County, but the fact that the ballad singing tradition apparently still exists in Madison County. Is, is that right? And, and what does that look like? What is that? I, I was surprised to see that it exists, you know, anywhere in modern America. Yeah, it still exists in Madison County, certainly more than in other places. And there's a John Penland, who's a, who's an expert on this. One of Jane Gentry's, probably her great, great granddaughter, uh, Sheila K. Adams, lives there and still keeps that tradition alive. There's other families. There's a, a, a yearly gathering where people come and sing these songs. And I mean, typically they they sing these songs a cappella. That's the song, that's the way they were traditionally sung. And that's also the way Sharp heard them. But we thought that this was another um, challenge of this record to contextualize these songs with, with chordal um, accompaniment, which not, not that they don't lend themselves to it, but they're ambiguous in musicality too. A lot of those songs are modal, meaning they're not in a major or a minor key, they're somewhere in between. Um, a lot of them end on the on the dominant chord, not on the on the tonic chord, which which what we're used to in in, in West traditional Western music. Yeah. So that's an, that that was another added layer of of complexity that that we welcomed. The setting is is sparse, and yeah. the scale is very small. Was there ever a conception of this album that was going to be a bigger ensemble, or was it always this? leaner uh version no it was from as soon as as it was clear that martin was going to be involved i wanted to maybe selfishly i wanted to keep it to two guitars and then there's a couple of songs where there's a fiddle and a banjo but you know to me the more obvious way to present these songs would have been to either go the acapella route or go all out modern and do this modernist take this modernistic approach to it, which i'm not a big fan of so i find the two guitars are sort of in the middle and in, in a way that that works for me if that makes sense um it, and, it, it, i think as a as a um as a conceptual idea to 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 highlight the the ballads and their themes and the uh, the, the archetypes you mentioned i think it's effective i think in terms of the uh the guitar work and the nuance and opening up the full frequency spectrum for those guitars to shine it's also a very effective uh, choice for the accompaniment. Well, well, for guitar enthusiasts, I think certainly there's something to be found there because our 
styles are so distinctly different. Martin plays in open tunings only and uh, plays finger style. And I play mostly in standard tuning and play with the flat pick on this record all the time. So that's also a meaning of the two worlds because the flat picking thing is more of an Appalachian bluegrass related thing. But um, it's, it's astonishing to me how much wider the dynamic uh, range is when you strip things away. If you add a bass or drums or whatever to it, not that there's anything wrong with that musically, certainly not, but then it, it just limits that in a way. And I, I didn't want to be limited by either the very traditionalist approach that these songs can only be played a cappella, but I also didn't want to fall in this trap that we have to do something really extraordinarily weird with these tunes. I just wanted to find a middle ground. And I think, I think that's, that's what we achieved. When you recorded that the first track together, which I believe was the Gypsy Laddie, yes. did, you, did you guys realize you had something something special? Oh, yeah. We, we realized that the day before we recorded that, I mean, we just sat around and, and played. It, was, it just felt so natural. And it's very difficult for two guitar. It's traditional. It's typically or often very sort of weird for two guitar players that work within the same style to to have a good understanding of how to play together and that was never there was there was never any discussion about anything we didn't we had nothing conceptualized for any of these songs we had no chord structures written down we had it was in all with all of these songs the singers walked in some of them didn't even know what key they wanted to do the songs in and we just you know sort of came up with the arrangements on the spot with the singers and and none of these songs took more than two hours to record She's gone with a gypsy Davy. All a lip toe, tally bonny hair, hair, all a lip toe lady. Will you forsake your house and land? Will you forsake your baby? Will you forsake your own wedded lord and go with a gypsy Davy? All a lip toe, tally bonny hair, hair, all a lip toe lady. What's interesting to me is that the way Martin and I play, there's always this, there's almost this polyphonic approach to it, mm-hmm. that sort of counterpoint between the two guitars. And we certainly didn't have the the time to 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 premeditate that or 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 write that out or organize it in some kind of way. It's just listening. And and Martin grew up, or not didn't grow up, but Mar- Martin has a lot of experience being a guitar player for for great uh, traditional singers. And and I was a guitar player for many years when I moved to Nashville here for people like Maura Connell and Nancy Griffith and Kim Ritchie. And so we, we both know what it's what it means to pay attention to what the singer does, because that's the job description. So in in some instances, like in, in, in uh, Pretty Sarah, we the timing that Odessa, that Odessa wanted to wanted on this song is so loose there's no there's hardly a pulse there so we had we really had to play on her in and out breath and to to figure out when the next phrase was going to start or end and and even that was surprisingly easy because we both feel it exactly the same way that's the surprising thing i think if it was one uh accompanist it would be impressive to to see that rubato executed so perfectly but the fact that two people did it simultaneously in perfect coordination was was really surprising <laughs> well it surprised us too honestly but it just it just worked you know everything fell into place another one of my favorite moments uh rhythmically in the accompaniment is uh 
on uh, I Whip My Horse. Yes. You guys do an interesting transition from, from three floor to, to four floor. How did that come about? That came about in the studio. Martin and I had no idea that this was going to happen. Faye Heald, who sings that song, who's also teaching folk song at the university in Sheffield, and we recorded this song in Sheffield. She came in and, and we played it a couple times, and she was like, you know what, this could also, I, I know this sounds a little weird, but could we try this, this transition from 3-4 to 4-4? Four, four? And it was like, sure, let's try it. And uh, it was a little hard to make that transition, so she put that clap. The clap, the, yeah. <laughs> and that clap is sort of like, like, I mean, it's like, why not put a clap in there? Who says you can't do that? You know, yeah. and uh, I think it's really cool because it becomes just this, it's so playful. And, and I love that. such a weird lyric too you know like i whip my horse just to draw the blood and then it becomes that the the jawbone of the horse becomes something to plow the corn with and i mean who would dare to write anything like that today You're, yeah it seems like an inefficient way to plow plow the crop <laughs> well and imagine the blank stare you would get from your musical publisher if you do <laughs> like that there's a lot of yeah dark and heavy topics uh, that, that that seemed to be the the taste of the day. Well, yeah, I mean those were probably those were certainly brutal times. You know, people got killed left and right, and people died young and had no no cure for for diseases and stuff. But you know, looking at our current environment, I'm not sure if it's less brutal. It, it's just or less violent. It's just more um, just a little more hidden. I was. This this is something I'm interested in your perspective on on this. You know, these are whether it's um, you know English peasants in the countryside in the old world, or whether it's uh, their Appalachian descendants. These are all hardworking agrarian people who don't have a lot of leisure time or time for entertainments, and and you'd think they'd pick some lighter fare that was a little less murder and intrigue and and uh, weird horse jaw stuff. Uh, why, why do you think they're so attracted to these kind of heavy, dark themes for their their escape time? You know, that's a that's a question that I'm not sure I have an answer for. But I think the landscape um, suggests topics like that. I think that's just what they knew, because you know, uh, and and also that's what people were that's what people wanted to talk about. Maybe to come to kind of maybe an internal solution to that. Uh, nobody else was. You know, there was no obviously no newspaper, no radio, no nothing. So they had to they had to come to to terms with those things on their maybe utilizing songs. You know, just I mean, I don't know. Why do we watch horror movies? I don't know. I, yeah. I have no I have no answer to that. And there are certainly are lighter songs in the in the collection too. There there are um, children's songs too, but um, these are just the ones that stood out to us in in terms of the narrative and the musicality as well. And also, you know, I think you, I mean, people in Appalachia, that rural people in Appalachia, that, those lives were not easy. And if life is not easy, maybe the best way to get over is, is to sing a sad song instead of a happy song, because a happy song is not as true a, a, a representation of, of your... Yes, your, your, your unauthentic uh, representation of your world, yeah. Right, right. Well, give, given the uh, number of lamentations on the uh, uh, on how awful married life is, I was glad to hear that you're still uh, wed to your, <laughs> your oh, just yeah. sweetheart from, <laughs> from your teenage years. years. Twenty five years married this year and thirty eight years to go. Well, I, I won't read anything into that song selection then. 
how did you how did you go? I mean, like with with five hundred songs to 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 choose from. I mean, you honed it in on uh, two um, uh, two sources of the the material that uh, Cecil. But even that, like, there were seventy songs from one of them. How how did you pick your your six? Well, I looked at stuff that I thought was musically interesting. Um, a lot, some of the songs in this collection are just musically speaking so short, like they they might be just an eight bar section that's repeated over and over and over again. And maybe I I tried to get to the ones that were a little um, longer than that because I felt like there's a little more musical uh, meat on that bone. There were a couple that I really 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 wanted to include because selfishly because the Gypsy Laddie has always been one of my favorite songs and I think it's one of the greatest opening verses of all songs of that I know. I knew that I wanted Tammy Rogers to sing uh, Single Life, Married Life because l later the Carter family would record a song uh, at the Bristol Sessions in 1927 called Single Girl, Single Girl, Married Girl. And Tammy remembers her grandmother telling her how she went to see the Carter family in schoolhouses and courthouses in East Tennessee, where Tammy's from. So mm -hmm. I knew that she would enjoy that, sing, having that connection there. Um, Awake, Awake is a song that I just thought was so incredibly beautiful that um, I wanted to include that. And also um, that one is only, there's only one version of that song in that, in, in the collection. So without this collection, this beautiful song would have probably been lost forever. Mm. Um, and so that's how I chose some of the songs. Martin, I, I, we didn't discuss so much how we went about that. Just, you know, a lot of it is just instinct. It's just like a beagle. You just follow where your nose takes you. Now, with in the collection, uh, Cecil transcribed the music, I believe, his assistant transcribed the, the lyrics. Yeah. What does it look like? Is it um, like, what does the music look like? Uh, it's standard notation. Okay. So, so like you would like you would notate a song. The interesting thing is that Martin doesn't read music. So I the, the way we went about it, once we had made a rough selection, I recorded the melody in their most basic form without any chordal context, no, no accompaniment, nothing. Just and the that's melody. how it appears in the in the book, right? It's a single note. That's yes. Melody. Yes. With no suggestion of chords. And so that's oh. how I recorded it and send it to Martin. And then that was the only way Martin could re relate to the to the music because he didn't because he doesn't read music. Mm. And then once we made the once we paired the songs with the singers, we went through the same process again. Some some of the singers can read music, so th to them I just sent a photocopied page from the book with the mm. with musical notation and the lyrics, and some others I sent a copy of the lyrics and that same um, just one melody line guitar thing. Mm. So. Again, also in a way, it was to to prevent any premeditation. You know, right. just like let's just get together and see what what happens. Now, I'm typically not a big fan of let's just get together and see what happens because <laughs> in musical sense, because typically what happens is nothing or chaos. But if you do it with, if it's just two people and one of them is Martin Simpson <laughs> and some really good singers, then it can work, and and it, and it did. The, you had mentioned uh, a, a kind of uh, a, a trend in modern music toward more introspection, more autobiography, and mm -hmm. a kind of a turn away from these uh, more universal archetypes. Um, right. One of the, uh, the you mentioned the, uh, the kind of twist in the narrator having uh, Odessa Settles uh, sing uh, Pretty, Pretty Sarrow and having it be a different um, context for the for the narrator as a as an immigrant person brought there in a, in a, in a very different in a different way yeah. uh, than the original narrator of the song um there are a couple of tunes the married in single life being one of them where you have a male perspective sung by a female vocalist yep. the wagoner's lad uh also a female perspective a male voice yep. in that one um uh it was it seemed to be an, an intentional thing uh with uh, with pretty sarah it, was it likewise with the others that you wanted to flip uh flip the narrator and the content uh and mismatch them intentionally it was not so much that i wanted to to flip it intentionally but it also didn't matter to me if it was flipped because it wouldn't have mattered to the people who sung these songs back then mm -hmm. case in point they were sung by mary by mm -hmm. jane Jeffrey and mary sands and i also don't think it matters if you can look at the uber of somebody like tom petty he was great at singing and writing and singing 
incredible songs in first person that had nothing to do with him. Right. And and most singers today don't seem to or writers don't seem to be willing or able to do that. You know, uh, to me, a singer is a is a is an actor. Um, and a lot of people want to talk about the truth as they perceive it. And I, I could care less about the truth. I want to I want to hear something that's entertaining and compelling, whether yeah. that's autobiographically true or not. I I don't care. Plus, the truth is such a shit word, honestly, you know, like, <laughs> according to whom, you know, or right. people talk too much about authenticity. Well, authenticity always needs to be followed by authentic to whom. Um, there, Jane Gentry, you could have asked her, do you think you're authentic? She would have just went like, well, I sing songs. That's that's all I can tell you, you know. So the, the, the question of authenticity always comes, is always asked by an outsider. An insider doesn't have, doesn't find any need to talk about this. And so that's something that I um, gotten sort of allergic to, which was sort of reinforced through my Appalachian Studies thing, which leaned heavily on ethnomusicology, where the question of authenticity is is very much questioned at this point, because yeah. it's clear that the listener is so much a part of the of the of creating the music almost, of the experience of of of, of making music. It strikes me as uh, as as captivating and and attractive as a listener when there is a mismatch, um, yeah. and it's it's. Uh, it's it's something like empathy. It's like it's like when John Prine says, "I'm an old woman," yeah. Joel, from Montgomery. I'm like suddenly I'm I'm captivated in a very special way. And I'm yes. like like wow, that guy is really able to project himself in, in into something else. I mean, and it's it's acting a role, but it's also there's something uh, that's that's connecting about it. Uh, yeah, I don't think that anybody ever listened to Angel from Montgomery and took took issue with that first line because mm -hmm. maybe because of its simplicity it's just like he's just stating it right from the get-go this is me singing about somebody else in first person which you know it's kind of sounds complicated but it's not <laughs> um we alluded to this before as well that the uh, the 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 mutability of the of the source material and how the the, the names can change you know you can go from from geordie to to Georgie, if you're yes. if you're Tony Rice, uh, yes. or you can go to Charlie in this in this recording, and the the places change, and you can sell your horses in the countryside of England, or you can sell them in Virginia, and yes. that's that's those details, as, as you know, as you alluded to, are less less important, and the theme and the storytelling, um, and the stories of class, the stories of lost love, are, are the are the more important uh, components uh, yes. of, of these things. Um, what uh you know kind of getting back to the the concept of the album and what what you want the listener to experience um what what is it uh from these archetype these archetypes and these these stories that you want them to to take away that that's 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 perhaps timeless well first of all i think it's it's super interesting to to look into the the what does it what what is an archetypal figure or archetypal uh theme to me, that in, involves, you know, looking at what Carl Gustav Jung had to say about that. And to me, that's highly fascinating because it gets into territory of shared unconsciousness and all of that. And I think he's pretty much on the right on the money that that underlies a lot of how we make music and listen to music. Um, but that might be a little on the esoteric end. But I, I'm glad that you mentioned that song, Jordy, because, um, you know, Sierra Hall is one of the greatest young bluegrass musicians, although I'd hesitate to call her just a bluegrass musician because she's mm -hmm. she can do pretty much whatever she wants to do. And her husband, Justin Moses, who sings and plays on that track with her, the same thing for him. He's on the road with Bela Fleck right now playing Dobro in his in his bluegrass, uh, my bluegrass heart band. And, you know, uh, uh, Sierra's biggest hero is Alison Krauss and Alison Krauss's biggest hero is Tony Rice and everybody in bluegrass music, especially younger people, and I would, although I'm 53, I'm probably, you know, part of the younger crowd, you can't get by a guy like Tony Rice. I mean, it's just a total seminal figure. And I thought it was so super interesting to have those two people who are so profoundly influenced by Tony Rice sing a song that Tony recorded mm -hmm. with Norman Blake, who's one of my biggest heroes and also the guy that I wrote my, my graduate thesis about. So there's, again, there's all these inter, these overlapping circles and all, all those lines that, that, that cross. And I, I think this song is also a beautiful 
um, example of, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 11 states that belong to the king or if they, if it happens in Virginia, it doesn't matter so much. It's about what is, a guy has to do something. And if that in, includes just stealing a bunch of horses, because otherwise he can't get by, then he has to do that. This uh, listening to this album and uh, reading the liner notes, but I think, uh, and I can speak for Brian here too. One of the uh, most important lessons I learned is that, uh, and Brian and I both have daughters. Uh, if if your daughter has a suitor that you don't approve of, the proper thing to do is to murder them. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if they just made a bunch of money and you could use some. Yeah, <laughs> it's been very instructional. Yeah, now I know what to do. <laughs> or, or, or exile her, and then he dies of, uh, of uh, a broken heart and comes back as a ghost. Then we exhume him. <laughs> but take, uh, a, take a song like Fair Annie, which opens the record, and Emily Portman is such an amazing singer because she sings with the emotional restraint of the, of the British folk singer. But then in the last verse, when the two women find out that they're sisters, there's a moment of joy in her voice that's just absolutely breathtaking and it's just mm-hmm. the tiniest little move um and that that would that's what makes a great singer and there's a weird story you know right uh, the woman her her husband's gone for seven years comes back and he married somebody else and she has to prepare the house she has to cook the food she has to bring them all beer and wine and then the two find out that they're sisters and they have the dude burned it's like well great yeah <laughs> And it's amazing that that's the juxtaposition. It's like in the next, like she she expresses that joy of realizing it's her sister, and in the next line, oh, let's 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 get rid of him. Yeah, we'll have Lord Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cold, it's a cold world. <laughs> <laughs> Come down the stairs, says she Tell me the name of your father dear And I'll tell mine to thee King Henry, he's my own father dear Queen Chartree, she's my mother Mary, she's my own sister dear Douglas, he's my brother Sure, I am your own sister, dear. Prince Douglas, he's our brother. We're seven ships all out on the sea. They're loaded to the brim. Five of them I'll give unto you, and two will carry me home. Five of them I'll give unto you. We'll have a Obviously, it's been a, a fascinating journey for us. We appreciate the album. We appreciate your time in talking about it. It's just full of so much irony and and uh, and, uh, and great stories. So it's been a lot of fun. 
Well, thank you guys. I mean, this, you know, this folk music stuff is really dear to my heart. And I know it's super dear to Martin's heart and all the people who sing on it. And I think it's music of, of just incredible beauty and depth. And I, that, you know, the, the whole folk thing of being a, being a tiny little wheel and every, hopefully every generation singing these songs again and reinterpreting them again. That's what keeps this music alive. Norman Blake says that every, you know, somebody has to do something with the old music for it, for it to survive. It doesn't just survive in a book. It might be preserved in a book for a certain amount of time, but then it needs to be sung. And I, I just love that. I love that concept, you know, and I love being a, a, a link in that chain. And I love that you can become a link in that chain, even if you're not from England or Appalachia, you can write yourself into that tradition. And, and people like, not to compare myself with those people, but people like Jerry Jeff Walker in his way or Bob Dylan in his own way um, have showed me, for instance, that it's not about who you are, it's about how you reinvent yourself. And then all of a sudden this music opens its arms to you and welcomes you. I, I couldn't think of a better thing. Well, thank you for a wonderful, a wonderful project with a great historical perspective and uh, a, one of the most tremendous listening experiences I've had in a long time. Oh my God, thank you so much. That means the world to me. And I thank you guys for having me and hopefully we'll do it again sometime. album from Tom Utes and Martin Simpson, Nothing But Willow, the songs of Mary Sands and Jane Gentry, will be available everywhere September 29th. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, Download the Craft Brewed Music app and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again and see you next time.